Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com. And use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You know what my favorite text is? A Waypoint and the Onyx Hunt app to a goblin turkey. The list on the Onyx Hunt app features for chasing turkeys is long, but knowing exact public and private boundaries and land ownership details will help you find more places to hunt, whether that's on public or private. I'll be toting the Hunt app through the spring woods in a few states this year, and I recommend you do the same if you want more turkeys on your table. Also, Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com hunt this spring. How many years do you think you grew tobacco? Mm-hmm. By the time I was big enough to work in a backer patch, and that was real little, until 2004 was the last year I growed it. So I probably was 50 years in the backer field. Really? Yeah. On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, I want to take you on a journey into the mountains of southern Appalachia. It'll be my pleasure to introduce you to the Clarks a family of farmers, musicians, and bear hunters who are relics of the region's culture. Dr. Daniel Pierce is a professor and author and national authority on Appalachian culture who will give us a guided tour through its fascinating history. We'll listen to the life story of this family, hear some bluegrass picking, and wade through the fact and fiction of the region's stereotypes. We might even talk about Dolly Parton. The people that lived, they lived, like I said, with the earth. They had to make their living. That's why I'm saying you cannot separate your music from your lifestyle. You cannot separate your lifestyle, your religion, your politics from your music. It's a part of life. And that was what our music was in the mountains. It was a part of our life. My name is Clay Newcomb, and this is the Bear Grease Podcast, where we'll explore things forgotten but relevant, search for insight in unlikely places, and where we'll tell the story of Americans who live their lives close to the land. This podcast, 50 Years in the Backerfield, is part one of of a two-part series on Appalachian Mountain culture. Check back for part two 
called Moonshine, NASCAR, and Bear Hunting. Also, I want to tell you again that we're going weekly with this podcast. We'll continue to do our documentary-style podcasts like this one every other week, but on the off weeks, we'll release what we call the Bear Grease Render, where we'll discuss, dissect, and distill the documentary-style episodes with a band of merry guests. (laughs) It's going to be a guaranteed blast. It's like the Bear Grease podcast, Unplugged. You're going to love it. And this little cabbage right here, you see that right there? Mm-hmm. 45 days. Mm-hmm. When I'm going to see a cabbage head, it do you in slaw, one of these heads would. When you cut them up, they make a right smart. So I know I've had them at four people didn't eat all of them. But did, you ever grow, did you ever grow tobacco? Yeah. You know, what, what, how did, what did you do with it? Well, the backer I growed was uh, Burley, and uh, and I growed it. I growed it in all these fields. Really? And, uh, so you grew it commercially? Yeah, yeah. I, that's what I done of farming. Besides tomatoes, really? was tobacco. That's the voice of Mr. Roy Clark, not to be confused with the Roy Clark from the show Hee Haw. This Roy Clark lives in Cock County in eastern Tennessee in the heart of the Smoky Mountains, which is a range inside the Appalachian Range. East of his front porch, you can see the high ridgeline border of North Carolina. And to the north, you'll hear the intermittent sound and muffled barks of his hounds. I've never seen Mr. Roy not wear overalls. It seems he has an everyday pair and his going out pair the latter looking sharp and new. Mr. Roy looks like he could be from Ireland. In his younger years, his hair was red, but now it's a faded shade of gray and white. He's 72 years old, and he's a living relic of times past. And you'll have to take my word for this. He's a bear hunter amongst bear hunters. He's dedicated his life to raising, training, and hunting bear hounds. He has a rich history with the American Plot Hound, a breed of big game dog endemic to the Appalachians. How many dogs have you got out here, Mr. Roy? 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. 24 out here and I've got some in the barn and stuff. That's a bear dog pack. <laughs> That's two or three packs, ain't it? <laughs> two or three packs. Uh, but Yano's a young dog. It's a doing pretty good that I hunted a little bit, yeah. Do you ever have a, a dog that didn't start out very good, that maybe was slow to start, that yeah, ends up being a top hound? Yeah, but dogs? I'm going to tell you something. Most of the time, because them naturals is the ones that's the best. Just most time. Southern Appalachia is a storied region of the United States. It includes the entire state of West Virginia, the western side of Virginia, western North Carolina, northwestern South Carolina, eastern Kentucky, east Tennessee, northern Georgia, and northeast Alabama. 
Basically, the region is defined by mountains, and it's roughly the southern one-third of the Appalachian mountain range, which runs from Newfoundland, Canada, all the way down to Alabama. This range includes at least 30 mountains higher than 5,000 feet and the highest peak east of the Mississippi River, Mount Mitchell in North Carolina, which is 6,684 feet above sea level. The range is an alternating series of ridges running north and south, which acted as a natural barrier to the western expansion of the early colonies that would become the United States. This topographic layout is important because the culture, like everywhere else, has been shaped by the land from which it was hewn. In this case, the mountains proved to be both an Eden, but also a cussed land, ridden with all varieties of scarcity. I began exploring the Appalachian region some years ago in search of the region's legendary bear hunters and houndsmen, of which there are many. But what I found was more robust. I found a cultural treasure rivaling any place I've ever visited. It's cold and old. Before we officially meet Mr. Roy, I want to be clear about something. Appalachia is a very diverse and modern region of the country. They have swanky coffee shops, distinguished universities, and target superstores. I've chosen to highlight rural Appalachia to get a glimpse into what it once was and the way that it still is to some. And frankly, I'm fascinated with rural culture and have the highest respect for people like the Clark family. Meet Mr. Roy. Mr. Roy, what are your what what are some of your earliest memories of living back here in East Tennessee? I remember uh, when I was a little I couldn't even hold a plow up, I'd plow them bottoms right down over them with a team of horses. Is that right? I would. Now what were y'all planting back then? Corn and tobacco. Hmm. Corn and tobacco. Uh, yeah, and hit a rock and hit it and make blue places on your side and stuff because I'd have to walk up in that plow and it would uh, hit you on the side and felt like it broke your rib or something. What year were you born? 1948. So you're 70. Three. three. I'll be seventy three in November. So what did what did your family do back in we're in uh Cock County, Tennessee? Actually Daddy drove a school bus when I was real little and then well before that he drove a log truck when my grandpa broke his leg twice. I believe he drove a log truck from ten year old up till he uh, So your grandfather was a logger. Yeah. They logged up in the gup up there. And they'd haul them over yonder to Dario, put them off over there, and then they'd load them on a boxcar next to the railroad track. Mm-hmm. Or they'd uh, roll them off, and then they'd load them on that uh, railroad car and haul them out of here. Mm. And then he drove a school bus, and while I was in school, 
And then I guess before I was out of school, he uh, went to work for the county driving a bulldozer and stuff. Uh, there wasn't a lot of money to be made in this country a uh, long time ago. Yeah. Okay, what what were some of the first things that you did to make money? Y'all were y'all were going and getting coal out of yeah, out of Kentucky. We'd uh, my grandpa. That's after I got like fifteen year old. I'd drive him to Kentucky and we'd uh, haul in coal and stuff out of Kentucky. Yeah, and go around and peddle it around. And then we'd uh, in the summertime we'd go to well, we'd go to Hendersonville to to his daughters and had peach orchards and apple orchards and. Grow the watermelon and cantaloupe, and we'd take that log truck and haul lamb in here, and haul peaches and pet lamb out, and haul watermelons and cantaloupes and and pet lamb out. So, what did you what did you do for a living? What kind of work have you done? When like, I got out of high life? school, I worked a little bit as a mason helper, uh, building some buildings on the Stokely Van Camp down there, and then I went to Mercaninka, which was a a fabric place. Uh, okay, in a factory. Uh, yeah. And then I went in service for two years. And then after I got out of service, I come back to Inca. Okay. And then it come up. I run for sessions court clerk and got elected for it. And I farmed all the time that I worked at Inca. I farmed. And then, Tell me about your farming. Well, it was hard work and not much money is mostly <laughs> what it was. I grow tobacco and I grow tomatoes and me and my brother-in-law and the whole family's worked in the tomatoes and we grow a couple acres of tomatoes. And Where we, were you selling the tomatoes? We used to take them to the packing house in North Carolina. Oh, really? We actually sold some in Tennessee too, but mostly in North Carolina where we took them to to sell them. And we done decent with that for a while and then tomatoes got so they figured out when to drop a price and you not make nothing out of them and we grow down for i don't know 10 or 15 years i guess and and then one year it come up at uh, that we took a load up there and uh, and when it come time to get the check we didn't get no money we got a bill we owed them 50 cents a box for packing <laughs> so uh we are you went, being serious i'm dead serious yeah I said they went in a hole on them. I said we owe them. We never paid it. So I went to, I went to Atlanta, Georgia, on the farmers market down there, and we was going in a hole. We wasn't even going to come out that year. And my brother-in-law, which was Edward, and my wife Brendan, and the youngins, and and my sister Diane and her youngins, and they picked the tomatoes here. Edward would truck them to me down there, and I stayed three weeks down there on the farmer's market and didn't even come home. And we come out making some money off of them. Sold them at the but farmer's market. we didn't market. go in a hole, but we quit raising them after that. Hmm. Now you, but you still raise tomatoes today, though. I still raise them to eat and tell you the Just truth. Just eat. I raised some late crops of tomatoes here after that. And I ain't talking about a big amount. I'm talking about that field right down there, say, three or four tenths. Yeah. Three or four tenths. Tenths of an acre. Tenths of an acre. And I actually made more money. And her peddling them to these restaurants and stuff and taking them and selling them, I made more money off of them. Like if I had 1,500 plants out and I could make $4 a plant, that was like, what, $4,500? Yeah. That's some money in them tomatoes, but the middleman got in the middle of it, took all the money away from me. Mm. And then the backer, it was... You made a little bit on here, but it wasn't no. So you no. grew, you grew backer, you grew tobacco for how many years? You think you grew tobacco? Mm-hmm. Actually, 
By the time I was big enough to work in a backer patch, and that was real little, until I, uh, 2004 was the last year I growed it. So I probably was 50 years in the backer field. Really? Yeah. Growing about 20 acres or so? Well, tobacco. not to start with. Yeah. But on the last, I might have had close to that. But now, we just mostly growed what we had when I was growing up. What he means when he says that he grew someone else's tobacco is that he's referring to a government tobacco allotment, meaning a person with the allotment is able to sell a certain amount of tobacco. The person can also lease out their allotment to another farmer to grow. That's like uh, daddies and pappies and my grandpa up here. I growed his from the time I was in high school, my grandpa's here. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had about a half acre. Yeah. That's what he had. Tell me how uh, how does your bear hunting fit in with your with your work? I mean, like, it's clear that you have dedicated a big part of your life to bear hunting with hounds. I had to work back or off in the fall of the year, and some of them would be a hunting. And I'd keep the radio on and listen and couldn't work back or for listening to them and, and stuff or grading it off. And, and they'd get one to going and I've left the backer barn and load me up six or eight dogs and hit the mountain up yonder. I remember one time as running one and I went up there and packed it and they're still on the other side of the mountain and I packed the bar and and treat it and kill the bar and had it kill when they got to me and stuff. I thought that was <laughs> You were working tobacco. <laughs> yeah. Couple of things. When he said he packed a bear, what he meant is that the other guy's dogs were chasing the bear. Mr. Roy heard their dogs running the bear, and he sent his dogs in as reinforcement. He packed them. Secondly, We just grazed the surface of Mr. Roy's bear hunting in this section. In episode two, we're going to dive much deeper. I was born into bear hunting. My grandpa bear hunted, my daddy bear hunted, my other grandpa here bear hunted a little bit, my great uncle bear hunted. It's been some bear hunting here ever since I was born. I think I was with Pappy and I was three year old and we was on the log truck in the gift the first bar daddy ever killed. Because mm. I remember I remember sitting on top of it on that log truck. But if it's something else I probably wouldn't remember it. What are your first memories of bear hunting back in there with your dad and grandpa? Well, I, I remember when I was say six year old, if I could wake up of a morning when they'd get, they wouldn't, daddy wouldn't get me up. But if I could wake up, a lot of times she'd let me go, you know, miss school and go. But then we would go uh, bear hunting and uh, and we would have to lead dogs through the woods. It got so that, that I'd have to lead the trail dog out in front of mm-hmm. the other dogs. I wasn't big enough to hold him. Well, when I'd go with daddy out in the woods and he'd be hunting a track, and if he'd put rambler time up around the tree, then he'd make me stay with him, and then he'd be trying to see which way it's going, and then he'd holler for me to bring that dog. Well, I know when I untied that dog, he was going to drag me down, so I'd, I know if I turned him loose, I'd be in trouble too. <laughs> so 
I'd just take and get two handholds on that ledge drop, and here we'd go, and I'd fall down, and Daddy'd catch me when I got to him. <laughs> and I know one time Daddy said, you're going to have to lead your ambler. We ain't got enough to lead the dogs. And I told Pappy, I said, my grandpa, I said, I ain't wanting to lead no dog. And he said, you'll have to go with him soon. And I said, well, I'll tell you one thing. I may go this time, but the next time I go bear hunting, I'll be big enough telling so I ain't leading her dog with her. Because, <laughs> son, he'd scare me to death they had to get that down. <laughs> and they had this bear over here that they had bought, and Uncle Bernie bought it in Florida, I guess, and they brought it back here. And they had it over there. Well, I was, I don't know, about three-year-old then, three or four. And they had food with that bear and food with it with dogs and stuff. Well, I was afraid of it, so I didn't want near it. And Daddy'd get me and set me up up on top of it, and... You talk about wanting off something. They they had a they had a bear. They had uh, yeah, a, a live bear. A live bear. And uh, I wanted off that sucker, buddy. I didn't want. <laughs> I was about like Grandpa was. He threw him in the barn. There's an old barn down here. Every time he'd get loose, he'd put him up in the tear poles down there. How common was it for bear hunters back then to have a live bear? Well, I never did hear of uh, another bear except after I got acquainted with Hort Dillingham up yonder, and 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 he said that. Uh, that his daddy had one at a store up there, and that was, you know, years ago, too. What What about uh, camping and hunting back in the Gulf with with them, with your dad and grandpa? Yeah, we'd actually uh, we'd actually load everything we had on a on a log truck, and you put your dogs and your food and your uh, tarpaulin and and everything on it, and go to the Gulf, and then we'd sleep in the back of that truck and put some hay down and stuff to sleep on and take a tarpaulin and cover over the back of it and let it come over the side and cook beside it and 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 hunt like that and when we had the old jeeps and we'd hunt out them jeeps and stuff roy how would you describe uh appalachian mountain culture i describe it in a way that there's no better way to grow up or have your youngins or your grand youngins to grow up in Appalachian culture, then I believe that's the best they are. Now, making money, that ain't the best they are. But having your family and being close to your family and having good values come to them, I think it's, you can't beat it. And actually the disaster stuff, like tornadoes and well, even flooding and stuff like that, and the tornadoes and stuff, I've never seen one here in my whole life. Yeah. And and I just think that's good, because down through yonder and some that flat country, they have to worry about it every time it comes to storm. Yeah, I wouldn't like to live like that. <laughs> like I say, if you want to make money, you better go somewhere else besides here. But I don't think it, uh, it making money, and if you can make it, is all they are to life. I want to step back a generation and introduce you to Mr. Britt Davis, who is Mr. Roy's father-in-law. It was a great pleasure to briefly speak with him. I was taken aback by his story, but mainly how it seemed to him to be so common. Mr. Britt, how old are you? If I live till the second day of June, I'll be 90. 90. What year were you born? 31. 1931. So you grew up, You were were you born in this hollow? Yeah, right up the road there about two miles. Now what kind of work did you do your whole life? Well, I farmed some, I logged some, and 
I worked about a year on this interstate down here, and then I went to work for the county road department mm-hmm. and stayed there until I retired. Have you ever, have you traveled much out of Appalachia? No. You've stayed uh, right here? I went to Texas one time whenever Roy was in the Army out there, and that's the only trip I ever made. Really? I lived on up in the Gulf up there. Well, I'd say we was up there about four or five years till my daddy got killed up there, and uh, I enjoyed that up there a lot. How did your How did your father get killed? With a log. The log rolled over him. Really? How old were you? I was about 12 years old. Wow. How did that impact your life? Well, it made it rough on me for a while. Yeah. Yeah, we was up there whenever the, about the time they started logging it, but he got killed and we left out a long time before they got done. Hmm. So did you have to kind of, were you the oldest son? I was the only son. So you kind of had to take care of your family? Yeah. Really? So was that a lot of responsibility for you then? Yeah, we moved back home here up here, and my grandparents hit me with it, and I raised a crop of the backer and bought the place where I lived. Mm. How old were you then? Uh, I'd say I was about 13 then. Really? So you, you raised a crop of tobacco when you were 13? Yeah. And bought a piece of property? Yeah. Wow. And that's the property that we went to earlier today up at the head of this holler? Just go pull out of here? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you bought that place when you were 13? Yeah. I'll be darned. And so you've lived, you've lived there your whole life then? Yeah. Whole life. What what are your earliest memories, Mr. Brett? Oh, law, I can I can remember things back then better than I can now, really. I can remember them a, a carrying me and uh, us a stopping and talking to our neighbors. That was before we moved to the Gulf. So that was in the 1930s. Did your family have a car? They had no. an automobile? No. 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 What? How did you get around? We just walked walked you didn't everything you needed you could walk to get yeah there's little old stores all around here mm. three or four well the first i'd say it was in the late 30s or the early 40s before that there's ever a car in this country is that right yeah a doctor lived right up the road there he had the first and tell me about how the the doctor worked in this community He'd go around in the, in his, uh, with his horse, and people wanted to be doctored. They'd tie a red or a white flag on their mailbox, and he'd stop. He'd ride his horse up to your house and knock yep. on the door and say, what's wrong? Yeah. And then he finally got a car, and, and uh, it done, they'd do the same thing. Do you ever remember being sick and him having to come to your house to doctor on you? Yeah. Really? What, what would you have been sick from? Maybe the strip throat or, or something like and that. And he'd come give you some penicillin maybe or something. And that's what he doctored with was penicillin. Penicillin. Wow. When did electricity come back in here? I'd say it was about 52 or 53 before I got it. So you were in your 20s before you had electricity? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you remember those days? Oh, yeah. 
What would what would you do once it got dark? Would you light the house? We'd with, light up a, had a lamp or lamp. What two. what kind of lamp was it? A coal burning yeah. lamp. And you would what would you do? You would sit around with the family. We'd just sit around and go to bed. I guess that's they finally got a radio. Mister Britt, do you remember when John F. Kennedy died, the president? Yeah. Do you remember where you were? Was that a significant? I remember exactly where I was at. Where were you at? I was over yonder. I was running the road director over on Tom's Creek, and I just barely got a past an old man's house. And he come out and run up the road behind me and hollered at me and told me about it. Hmm. <laughs> Do you hear what they're saying, Mr. Britt? I didn't they're, hear They're breeze. saying because you... Uh, because you were the only child, you've been spoiled your whole life. Do you agree with that? Uh, I wouldn't hardly say that. <laughs> wow, what a story. Back to Mr. Roy. I asked Mr. Roy what he thought about moonshine in the mountains. This is what he said. And remember, in part two, we're going to explore this much more. My daddy and grandpa and uncle and some of their close friends and stuff probably turned me against uh, drinking and stuff because they stayed drunk all the time. So and you don't drink? No, I ain't never drunk. I know we'd go get them peaches. And we went and got a load one time and the peaches was uh, overripe. And they was too soft. We couldn't, didn't get to sell many of them. But we had probably 125 or 30 bushel on the truck. So they made us help seed the peaches. And they put them in barrels and they made liquor out of them peaches. And I don't know how many years they drunk on it, but I don't think they sold any. And I always thought to myself, I ain't going to never drink because I, I put up with it my whole life and I ain't going to be like that. Mm. Uh, for somebody had to put up a me like that. Yeah. Talk to me about music in your family. What what does how have y'all well, how do y'all play actually, music? Actually, and- it's been in my family. It goes way back. My grandmother was a was a picker, and my daddy was a picker and a singer and stuff. And and I guess it just come right on down to we. So what kind of what kind of music do they play? Mostly bluegrass and mostly ballads and stuff like that they've sung and stuff now you sing you sing and dance a little bit a little bit yeah i don't know maybe if we can get them all lined up here after a while we'll we'll jar the side of this hill a little bit (laughs) sounds good to me while visiting the clarks i wasn't shy about asking them if they'd play some music for me they obliged I hope you'll join me in recognizing the uniqueness of a legendary bear hunter, Mr. Roy, singing a song about bear hunting. This is Old Slewfoot. What's, what song is this, Mr. Roy? Bear tracks. Bear tracks. What's, what's this song about? It's about a bear and, a, and me after it. <laughs> High on the mountain, boys, tell me what you see. Fire tracks, fire tracks, looking back at me. 
You better get your rifle, boy, before it's too late. The bear's got a little pig headed toward the gate. Oh, he's big around the middle and he's brought across a run. Running 90 miles an hour, taking 30 feet of jump. Ain't never been caught, he ain't never been tree. Some folks say he looks a lot like me. I saved up my money and I bought me some bees. They started making honey way up in the tree. Cut down the tree, but my honey's all gone. Old Slewfoot's done, made himself at home. Oh, he's big around the middle and he's proud across the run. Running 90 miles an hour, taking 30 feet of jump. Ain't never been caught, he ain't never been tree. Some folks say he looks a lot like me. Well, winter's coming on and it's 20 below. The river froze over, so where can he go? We chase him up the gullies and we run him in the well. We shoot him in the bottom just to listen to him yell. Oh, he's big around the middle and he's brought across a run. Running 90 miles an hour, taking 30 feet of jump. Ain't never been caught, he ain't never been tree. Ain't never had nobody after him like me. That's right. That's right. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Nukem has an Aura frame, and we share photos and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura Frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter-acre food plot. 
Imperial whitetail clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover extreme genetic stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. It really does. Clover is coated with Whitetail Institute's Rain Bond, a polymer coating added for enhanced seedling survivability. They have an exclusive offer for Bear Grease listeners, 15% off Imperial Clover when you use the code BEAR at whitetailinstitute.com. That's whitetailinstitute.com and use code BEAR for 15% off. The old timers say that the turkeys start gobbling when the leaves are as big as squirrel's ears and the red buds start popping. And we're about there. And we are there in the south. The Onyx Hunt app is one of my most valuable tools in the spring woods. With tools like coniferous versus deciduous tree distribution layer, you can save time by locating edges or transition areas of mixing habitats from home. Find an area like this with water in close proximity, and more than likely, there will be a goblin turkey nearby. Knowing the exact boundaries of private ground ensures I stay on the right side of the fence, but can easily find public ground to go see if I can't strike a gobbler. If you do get one to sound off, using compass mode and waypoints will help you pinpoint his exact location, allowing you to move in and make the perfect setup to bring him right into your lap. Download the Onyx Hunt app today. You'll be glad you did. Onyx has a special offer for you. Use code BEARGREASE to receive 20% off your membership at onyxmaps.com slash hunt this spring. While we're talking about music, I want you to give ear to Olabelle Reed. She was born in 1916 and passed away in 2002. She's Appalachian to the core, a folk singer, a songwriter, a banjo player, and a philosopher. If you listen to her talk and sing, you'll get a window into Appalachia that cannot be replicated. In 2019, the Library of Congress inducted her 1973 album titled Olabel Reed into the National Recording Registry. This is a clip of that recording. Meet Olabel Reed. been asked many times to describe my life in the mountains and there's one point that I specifically like to make and want to make is that there, I don't believe there would be any way in the world that you could possibly describe it there could be no fun made of it because it was a life with the earth your elements as the old people called it the birds, the animals, the bees, you knew every you knew every season. You could tell, you were raised to kind of tell when a storm was gonna come. I always tell this because you could see the leaves turning in the summertime particularly. In the winter you could tell if it was uh, gonna snow because of the base of the color of the base of the trees. So many things you just grew up with that you get away from as you go through life if you're not careful. 
Now, I'm not saying that you go strictly back to the past, but I'm saying there's no way in the world that anybody could ever make fun or poke fun at the way people were raised in the mountains because as far as the music is concerned, we did gospel, we did blues, we did everything. I did not play what you would call, I guess, professionally. I don't know. The word never just quite suited me, but anyway, there had to be every nationality in the mountains at one time for them to know each other's ways of life. There was communication because I think people needed one another and they realized it, you see. They realized it so much and I believe one of the reasons was because they were so close, really and truly because we were so close to the earth and the elements and to God's creation. I think that's the one thing made them know. I think that all and your music and everything comes through communication with people. And uh, the people that lived, they lived, like I said, with the earth. They had to make their living. That's why I'm saying you cannot separate your music from your lifestyle. You cannot separate your lifestyle, your religion, your politics from your music. It's a part of life. And that was what our music was in the mountains. It was a part of our life. I've Dr. Dan Pierce of the University of North Carolina, Asheville, is my new friend. He's a national expert on the Appalachian region, and his love of mountain culture has fueled his writing. He's the author of numerous books that help interpret the region's story in a significant way. He's also known as UNC Asheville's professional hillbilly. Meet Dr. Dan Pierce. Well, I can't introduce him without leaving a trail of fodder to part two of this podcast. Here are a few of the titles of his books. Tar Hill Lightning, Corn from a Jar, and Real NASCAR. But we'll get to all that later. So, Dr. Pierce, all the regions of America have been influenced by immigration for the most part. Where did the people from the Southern Appalachians come from well there there are a lot of streams of immigration that come into the region and so you know there is a there uh, there is kind of a stereotype that um, the appalachians are the uh, scots irish culture right. plopped down and being unchanged for hundreds of years hmm. the scots irish were for sure in terms of the the dominant ethnic group that came to this region, but there are lots of other groups. There are Germans, they're English. Daniel Boone was an English Quaker. You know, you can't mm. think of a more Appalachian person than Daniel Boone, you know, and so you know, that was not unusual. And so and other, you know, Moravians and of course, uh, this is something that in recent years that scholars have looked at a lot more is that even though you can go to lots of parts of Appalachia today, you can go to adjoining counties here and you'll find only a handful of African-Americans, but there were significant numbers of African-Americans in every county in Appalachia. Hmm. So that's a part of that that stream as well. But again, the dominant group were the Scots-Irish. And um, Now, would we be in the southern Appalachians here in North Carolina? Yeah. That's the way you would describe yeah, in Western North, Yeah, from really, you know, northeast Alabama, north Georgia, through east Tennessee, western North Carolina, western tip of Virginia, 
West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. Be the Southern Appalachian. That's the Southern Appalachian. So the the Scots Irish people would they would be a dominant feature of this region, or at one time would have been. Was this the only place they came, or were there other parts no, of the I country? I mean, you look at the whole uh, what people refer to as the Upland South. You know, right. this is like the non cotton belt, the North Georgia, North Alabama, North Mississippi, much of Tennessee you know, Western North Carolina, all the way through to Texas, Arkansas. The Scots, one, people kind of look at this and say, you know, how can you be Scots and Irish? Right, and explain what, that. Yeah, what happens is in the um, Elizabethan period, the late 1500s, the English conquered much of Ireland during that period. And so Elizabeth and then her successors gave what they called plantations or big tracts of land to people who had helped, you know, nobility who had helped them out. And they didn't trust the Irish. Uh, they were Catholic. They saw them as barbarians and savages. A lot of the same imagery you're going to see when English people come to America and characterize Native Americans in the same way. It's, it, it's really kind of kind mm. of very interesting to look at. So to work their plantations, they imported people across the Irish Sea from the lowlands of Scotland. So these are not, there's a lot of misconception in parts of the Southern Appalachian region that they think of their, you know, their, the bagpipes and the plaids and so these were not those Scots. Those are mm-hmm. Highlanders. You know, these are Lowland Scots. And so mm-hmm. they come over to Northern Ireland and they, and they work these plantations and they're pretty successful. They're raising sheep. They're uh, raising linen. They're there for, you know, a hundred years or a little more, but then think the economy changes, things get pretty bad for, you know, rents, go up dramatically, wool market declines, and America is opening up at that point. And so mm-hmm. you see it really hundreds of thousands of people in Ulster, uh, Northern Ireland, Protestants for the most part, the Scots-Irish, begin to make the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. Mm-hmm. And they come in through Philadelphia, then they start moving into western Pennsylvania. That land's taken up by Germans and others who've been there before, the Germans right. and the English. And so then they head down what's called the Great Wagon Road, which is now I-81, down through the Shenandoah Valley. <laughs> now it's a real wagon road. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. And so they head down through the Shenandoah Valley, and then they end up in western Virginia and North Carolina. And then mm. as the Cherokee are driven out of the region in the late 1700s, they move into the – and my kin lived in uh, – it was part of North Carolina then, but it became Tennessee, the the uh, northeastern part of Tennessee. And then moved down the Holston and Tennessee River Valleys, and my folks settled in just south of Knoxville, between Knoxville and Chattanooga, hmm. and then moved west from there into West Tennessee and yeah. Arkansas and Texas. And so that whole area, really, probably the dominant group and dominant ethnic group, you know, probably, you know, half or so or close to it. Okay, that's a good, that's a, I was going to ask you that, like how, so if it wasn't all Scots-Irish, how much of it was? So maybe yeah. 50% of yeah, the maybe 50%, population here. Yeah, but they had yeah. a you know, a huge cultural impact, and they brought a lot of things with them. Can you describe kind of the dominant features of the Scots-Irish and what they did bring over here? And also yeah. my, my end question, I don't want to stack them too deep here, but is, you know, where do we see that culture still yeah. displayed today? Yeah. You know, and a lot of things, and again, you can get a little carried away and stereotype these things. 
For one, you got to understand the way culture works is that it's it's not, and and later on, particularly in the early 20th century, people uh, from the outside who come to the region want to characterize this region as being like preserved in amber or something, you know, like they're they're just locked in the past, you know, which is not at all true Mm. because culture is always evolving. And when they come here, of course, they don't survive in this area unless they learn from the Cherokee. Because you you know <laughs> again okay you know for one thing these are not hunting people <laughs> when they come yeah. I mean everything in the British Isles you know the only yeah. people that are hunting are people in the Nobel well unless you're a poacher you yeah know? yeah <laughs> uh, you're not hunting over there so when they come here of course that's going to be part of their subsistence yeah okay who teaches them to hunt you know Daniel Boone doesn't come at this as a he right. has to learn. Who's he learned from? He learned from the from the from the Cherokee, from the Native Americans in this area. There's so a lot for, of that for kind a of interchange. Time, there would have been some a positive, a friendly relationship between some of these people and some of the Native Americans. Yeah, I mean, you actually see early on with people like Boone. There's a period in Boone's life where you know, and, and there were a lot of concerns in communities and with people about people going native, you know, right, because right. there were things that were very appealing. And there were some questions. Boone was actually captured by the Shawnee and taken into what's now Ohio. There are some questions about, did he have a Shawnee wife? Did he have a Shawnee right. family? Was Boone tempted to stay with the Shawnee? But mm. but these people bring a lot of things with them. And the things that they brought, one, of course, are the biggest things that they bring are the music. And mm. so, you know, a lot of the music that we think about is Appalachian, is traditional and stuff like that, or is music that has made the trip across the ocean, the old ballads and the fiddle tunes and things like that. And you can trace a lot of the music that's even, you know, some of it's, you know, a lot of it's still being performed today. There may be in a very, very uh, American take on it. It may be a ballad right. about the, uh, about Tom, Tom Dooley, you know, who, who conspires with one of his lovers to kill another lover, you know, that mm-hmm. becomes a popular song very later on, or about Frankie Silver, who's, who's a woman who kills her husband and gets, gets executed, you know, Rough in, country in the 1830s. Here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the ballads were a big part of that and those are yeah. always tragic. You know, there's a, there's wow. always that theme in these things, but that, of course, you know, those things get combined with other influences. For instance, right. like we, we think of the banjo as being characteristically Appalachian, but it's an African instrument, you know, right. so, Right. So that's where that comes from. So again, it gets combined with but all these other but the, things. Their, their culture of music, just families that played music, and the the social aspects of gathering everybody up and playing music, that's legit. I mean, yeah, that, that I mean, is a real part of Appalachian get, culture. Yeah, you get these influences that are coming over, and then, and again, you throw other influences in, but it really, you know, is shaped by, in the 1800s in particular, by what I call front porch culture. And so you get, you know, you get music that's suitable for a front porch or, or folk tales or dancing. That type of thing, you know, is, is largely influenced by what the Scots-Irish bring. And, and this is reinforced by the area, but, but you know, they're bringing with them, and again, you can get real carried away with stereotypes. Um, Jim Webb, who was a senator from, what, I think, Virginia, you know, he wrote a book on the Scots-Irish called Born Fighting, you know. And so you can get carried away, but there is that 
independent streak of you're not going to tell me what to do. And that's really reinforced because people are living, you know, the way that they the region is settled is very different from than, say, like eastern Pennsylvania, where people tend to live in communities, you know, but mm. people are living in kind of scattered. I mean, part, and it's partly geography, you know, that people are living in right. scattered. So there's not a lot of bottom land. So the ge- what I'm hearing you say is the, the geographic features of it. Like we're in some pretty rough country here, a lot of. A lot of topography, a lot of elevation change, and just steep mountains and stuff. So there, there just wasn't a big flat spot for a right, big city to right. be. Happen. It was like some some family was down in this hollow, and another family was over here. And I mean, you had communities, but that that reinforced kind of isolation, yeah. independence. Yeah, it, it works together. The culture they're bringing with them, with the topography, really kind of does reinforce that that sense of uh, rugged or. Some people would call it cussed independence that, mm. uh, you know, I think is still much um, there. And I think, again, it's a kind of that combination of culture and geography. And another thing that, you know, is very much part of that is making liquor. <laughs> liquor. There, we've said it. To understand the impacts and the real story of how moonshine has attached itself to this region, you'll have to listen to part two of this series. We're saving it. I mean, a lot of these people, when they came, I mean, one, they brought in their head the knowledge of how to make uh, whiskey. And in many cases, they, you know, they brought a still with them. Really? Uh, And so this is an important part. You know, you look at how people lived in this region for a long time and, and still a few, you know, it was primarily subsistence, you know, there. Right. And again, you know, you, you, you throw in other influence because they're not bringing their culture and plopping it down. But, you know, for instance, you know, the grain that they're going to grow is not barley or wheat or it's going to be corn, you know, which is not, which they learned when they got here, you know, from the native Americans. And so, but they, you know, they're raising most of their food and then they're also, one of the things they bring with them, although there are a number of them already here that the Spanish brought are, are hogs mm. and hogs are incredibly important. And it's a, some people refer to this as a, as a hog and hominy economy because it's mm. corn, you know, the staples are corn and pork. Dr. Pierce, how has this culture been stigmatized in a negative way nationally? That's my number one question. Number two question is how have we, glorified it in maybe ways that it didn't deserve yeah and actually that's those stereotypes cut both ways it's mm-hmm. really it, it's really interesting but you see in the late 18 one appalachia enters a period you know prior to the civil war the southern appalachian region was a pretty good poor man's country i mean you could could subsist pretty well mm. but in the aftermath of the war a lot of things changed i mean one, one the, the devastation of the war itself and people don't think about Appalachian the war, but there was really an internal war going on here. And then, you know, so much, you know, so many men were lost because so many men were uh, either volunteered or were conscripted into both armies. You know, there are significant numbers of people in the Southern Appalachian region that are fighting for the Union. And there's community warfare, you know, between, you know, kind of armed militias uh, uh, during this time. And so there's that. And then what they called um, impressment, where the particularly the Confederate army come in and say, okay, I need, I need your Hawks, you know, and, mm. and they would write you out a receipt and say, okay, go to the County seat and you can get compensated in Confederate money you know, for this, you know, but again, you so can't good. replace your hogs or your horses or your mule or anything like that, that they're taking in that. 
So the war itself, but then after the war, you get a number of things that happen. One is that population grows, and you know, so many and people had you know pretty sizable 150, 200 acre farms before the war. You know, they have families of like ten kids or more. Hmm. And so when you die, you divide that up. It doesn't take many generations to where you've got a farm that's really not able to support hmm. a family. And so, and, and what do you do? Well, increasing, there's a lot of land around here. There's not a whole lot of good flat riverine farmland, you know? So you start farming on land you shouldn't farm. And of course it just, it, it, it exhausts very quickly. It erodes it's, you know, and so it's just increasingly hard. And then other things, you get the changing of the fence laws for a variety of reasons where now you have to keep your animals pinned up. You can't free range anymore. Mm And so that really cuts into the whole livestock thing. And it, and it becomes cheaper because of the railroads to bring pork in from Cincinnati or somewhere like that and then to produce it yourself. And uh-huh. so your market's gone, you know, for another cash crop. You get the excise tax on liquor, you know, and so all these ways, it's, it's just kind of a huge, you know, it's almost a conspiracy, you know, you look at it and say, you know, everything bad that could happen could happen. Hmm. And so it's harder and harder to make a living on the farm. You know, and so, you know, poverty and, of course, education becomes less of a priority in an environment like that. And and this is a time when you get people coming into the region and, quote, discovering Appalachia and mm. kind of defining Appalachia as this kind of different, unique kind of place. And so you get a lot of these what are called local color writers who come in and they write these stories, you know, and a lot of the stereotypes. Well, and at the same time, you're also having a, uh, in the um, 1870s, 1880s, you have what's called the Moonshine Wars in the region where the federal government really starts cracking down. And so the national press comes in and they're covering it and sensationalizing it and then characterizing these people as these brutish, ignorant you know, mm. type people. And so you're getting these images nationally, you know, and everything, you know, again, it's, it's poverty, it's ignorance, it's... And the media back then was probably much like it is today. Oh, they're, yeah. they're trying to oh, yeah. sensationalize anything they, they can, probably. Right, and so they love these stories of these shootouts between revenue agents. So that's what you hear, even though that was an exception, probably. Right. And and the Hatfields and McCoys, you know, and feuds. They love feuds, you know. (laughs) And so it just all plays into this image. Well, you know, and that that image is perpetuated over the years in just incredible way, you know, because then, you know, so you get books, you you get the, uh, the media, you get and then you get movies, you know, a lot of the early silent movies were these, you know, what, what one uh, historian called the moonshine and feud movies, you know, mm. and then you get into music and, and uh, those stereotypes in many ways, and they're just perpetuated about the region. You know, you see the the uh, bumper stickers around here that people think are funny. You know, it's a, you know it's just paddle faster. I hear banjos. You know, <laughs> and so yeah. you know you get that kind of thing. This still, yeah. I mean, it's amazing because we have so many people coming to this part of Western North Carolina from Florida or from New York or New Jersey or something, and they come here and it's amazing. These could be highly educated people, but they, you know, they're fearful, hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. of, of of going outside the actual city limits because hmm. of, you know, those people, you know, and they yeah. really, uh, really do fear them, you know, and, yeah. And so, but again, it's just magnified, and it seems like you know, in an era where you know people are very uh, like. 
Well, you don't stereotype people. You know, we don't do that, you know, and we look at people as individuals. But the one group that seems to be fair game, I mean, all you have to do is turn on the cable TV, you know. Yeah. It seems like it's 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 people, well, people from Arkansas and uh, yep. people, right people from the Ozarks, people from the Southern Appalachian region. Yeah. And so that's that's fair game still. And so, again, you get into all these these bizarre stereotypes. You know, it seems like what I'm hearing you say is that poverty was the driver yeah. for most of this. Yeah. 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 That's interesting. Yeah. And of capturing the region at a certain moment, you know, when they were yeah. in abject poverty, you know, and then, yeah. and then extending that, you know, for time immemorial, you know. If we're talking about poverty, if you, if you think about like kind of the legs were taken out economically yeah. of this group of people. And if they had been in a place that had massive river systems for transport or had incredible cropland or had some incredible natural resource that could have stimulated the their economy, they the whole culture would have been different. But like these mountains are so rough and rugged and hard to live in that when the way they originally started living was taken out, poverty came in like I, I, again i'm just thinking about how the natural landscape affects different places because if this had been a port air you know if there had been right. an ocean here like they would have you know but this is inland this is a kind of an isolated again thinking about how the landscape affects these cultures but well it does and and you can get carried away on on exaggerating isolation you know because right. uh, Cause there were a lot there were people most people i mean particularly out. by the late 19th century people are generally not too far from a railhead. Yeah. You right. know, and, and they're, you know, the thing that amazes people is that people, because you, you look at it now and you see all these forests and everything, but again, I mean, this whole region was clear cut. Right. So this wasn't, and there were railroads up into every cove and hollow in the region. You yeah, know? yeah. 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 Uh, and then, but then a lot of it, you know, the federal government came in, the forest service bought it up and then you got national parks and stuff like that. And so, you know, a lot of it's, now reforested um, different than it as was as well so but you know isolation is is there again it limits your opportunity so again you you face that you know how do i live you know yeah. and so you're you're either pretty crafty or you you live at a very low level or you leave i tell you what the, dolly parton is like fascinating yeah to me i mean we we grew up you know listening to some of her stuff like but when you come here and Appalachia, especially pretty close to Pigeon Forge and Sevierville. There's just something that the world just loves about this yeah. lady that was really a true Appalachian, had a very maybe common Appalachian upbringing, just, you know, one-room log cabin, poor, and coming out of that. Her influence in this region is notable. Yeah. What I mean by Dolly's influence is notable is the sheer number of billboards and images of Dolly that you see here. Much of it is fueled by the Dolly Parton theme park called Dollywood. I wish they would sponsor this podcast so all the meat eater folks could get tickets. Mmm, I digress. And I think, I mean, Dolly's obviously exceptional, but I think she illustrates a lot of things that are important to the region. One, I think, you know, because of that whole stereotype about ignorant hillbillies that i think dolly illustrates there you know and the, and, and the deeper you look you see i mean you know poverty has a huge impact on this but you have so many people who have come out of this this region who are 
you know, just incredibly creative, uh, intelligent entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, I mean, just creators, you know, and, uh, you know, that are shaped by their experience in this region, you know, and Dolly is obviously, you know, to, um, you underestimate, uh, Dolly Parton at your peril, but at the same time, Dolly has very effectively done something that a lot of Appalachian people have done. And so stereotypes can be damaging, but in some ways they can be beneficial. And if you're smart and you know how to use it, you make a lot of money off the Appalachian stereotypes. And Dolly has made a you lot know, of She plays the the innocent, hillbilly, naive country girl card. But yeah, you don't have to look very deep to see that she is a genius in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. There's a friend of mine named Wayne Caldwell's novelist, and he, he wrote a book called Requiem by Fire, which is about a community in the Smokies. When they created the National Park, you know, they removed people. Right. And these people go to a neighboring community, and they got a bunch of stuff from their barn, and so they buy an old gas station, you know, and they kind of put the stuff out, you know, and make some souvenirs and stuff like that for the tourists. And so, you know, one day they're sitting in their store. They, You know, the business hadn't been too good when, since they first started out, you know, and somebody comes in, and, and one of the women's kind of playing around. She she finds an old bonnet, you know, which is, was her grandmother's. So she puts that on, you know, and then somebody comes in the store, and there's like, oh, man, these are real you know, hillbillies or whatever, you know, and then the guys start, well, we're going to play into that. So they start wearing overalls, you know, and carving, you know, little G-Hall whimmy diddles or whatever, you know, that yeah. kind of play into the stereotype. And so, you know, it's basically the idea that, okay, you're going to have this stereotype of me. And so I'm going to play into that stereotype and sell it back to you. Yeah. And yeah. so that's what Dolly is doing. Yeah. Anyway, she's yeah, selling yeah. that stereotype. Uh, in many ways, and it, it's very effective. And I have to admit that I, you know, uh, you know, being in academia, I, yeah. you know, and I kind of play to the stereotype. Sometimes I, you know, I'll never forget the look <laughs> on a, on a, on the face of a chancellor and and most of the administrators when I was on this committee, and and uh, we were talking about something. I don't remember what it, what it was, but you know, and it's a very serious kind of thing. And so I go, and I, I kind of had a different view than they did. And I said, well. Let me throw this skunk into the middle of the table. And they kind of looked at me like, who are you? Well, they got their attention, you know. I don't really know what to say to conclude in a statement stating what I've learned. I think I can trace my deep respect for rural people back to my dad. He was a banker in a rural town in the mountains. And when he came home from his white-collar job, he didn't tell me about the people that lived within the boundaries of the city. He told me stories about the loggers, the moss gatherers, the cattle farmers, and the hunters. It was the people that mainstream society didn't celebrate. It taught me not to take society's word for who has value and who doesn't. I don't know if he did that on purpose, but he marketed these people to me as if they were legends. People like James Lawrence, Ori Province, and who you've met today, Roy Clark and Mr. Britt Davis, are hero-type figures to me. None of these men ever asked for attention. I'm certain many of you can identify people like this in your life. Aside from being notable woodsmen, their trend is consistent. 
They proved a high level of character through the use of negative things in their life to build something positive. They didn't let scarcity, difficulty, or hard times define their life. And they're all humble. None of these men are perfect, but they have a unique brand of character. I believe their stories are worthy to be told. There are no answers in life found by moving backwards. And I hope the frequency of these stories doesn't cast too much of a lustful eye on the past. But my hope is that by looking back, we'll become appropriately relevant for a successful future. I'm glad to be alive in 2021. We were put here for such a time as this. Appalachian mountain culture is fascinating. And I continue to stand on the idea that a person who can appreciate their own culture is more apt to appreciate the culture of another. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.